0: Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Abib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. I'm so excited to be joined for this episode by the poet D. A. Powell to talk about the occult and alchemical powers of poetry, and also talk about. Uh, What poetry does and does not do in the world, and why we are so obsessed with asking those kinds of questions. Uh, D.A. Powell, um, who just I know as Doug, um, has written a lot of critically acclaimed books of poetry, uh, probably best known as his trilogy, which is known as Repast, which is the three books Tea, Lunch, and Cocktails. Um, And one of the great things about D.A. Powell's poetry and his views on poetry is that he refuses a kind of reduction. This is what the poem is about. So in other words, people have repeatedly referred to that trilogy uh, as a trilogy about AIDS. And he says, no, this is not about AIDS Although it is related to AIDS, there's a lot else going on here, and I don't want to reduce my poetry to that angle. And you know, its I think its it's sort of an important thing to keep in mind when we think about poetry, because although I don't say it in this episode, I think that if poetry is supposed to do anything, and I don't think that poetry is supposed to do anything in particular, but if it is supposed to do something, it is supposed to stop us from narrowing in and just seeing one aspect, one side of the story or the world. Uh, In other words, it shows us how many aspects of the world there are. And we talk about that uh, in particular when we talk about a poem that is written, called The Kiwi Comes to Gridley, California. And what I mean by that is like, you know, you know, some people are just so focused on Trump and the Trump administration, and that's all I can talk about. You know, it spills over into their social media, to their dinner party conversations, or conversations with their family, and it's this perpetual anxiety. And yet, All the while, so many things are happening in the world in that moment while they're having that conversation with this sort of uh, deep point of anxiety. So, you know, there are... uh, There are Picasso triggerfish swimming in the ocean, and there are cells um, splitting, and there are hairs growing on people's heads and thoughts being thought for the first time by babies, and, of course, the stars, and, of course, the weather, and there are elephants roaming around on the planet, and there are rocks that have just been sitting there, sitting there still for a long time. And I think that this is part of what poetry does, is it represents or reveals or demands um, the multifaceted uh, nature of the world and the fact that there is a simultaneity at all times. So anyway... I don't think that poetry always does do that. Sometimes, actually, it narrows down into a single point. But uh, I do want to say to you as we go into uh, this episode of the show that that was part of my reason for asking Doug on the show because I knew he would be able to speak to that so well and how that relates to the occult, how that relates to magic, how that relates to our views of what reality are and how much, Of the work poetry does uh, in that realm and how much actually of a burden poetry has to carry because of that Uh, and I think it's a really exciting discussion this is definitely one of my favorite episodes and so uh, whether or not you know Doug's work you're going to hear a bunch of his poems uh, in this episode so I'm excited even just for that just to share those with you okay so now Uh, This is the part of the show where I ask you to uh, support the show uh, by going to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. I just said, I will ask you, um, because there is always sort of a feeling of please support the show. But really what I mean to do is sort of declare that you support the show. (laughs) Um, and why I'm saying that is like, you know, we don't have an idea of paying for our podcasts, paying for the things that we love sometimes because they're so accessible to us. Um, when I record the show, I do research on my guests. I, uh, read all their books which means buying all their books i you know have to come up with the questions i spend the time making the show notes which are also available at patreon.com forward slash connor Beeb to the general public um posting the episode promoting it all that kind of stuff and so what keeps this show going is uh people who are interested in it who decide to contribute to the mission uh of the show and what the show does in the world which is i think Uh, a bit like what a poem does, which is present complexity. And uh, in some ways, this show, I hope, is a spell against anxiety, a spell against sort of worshiping one obsessive anxiety-producing point when, in fact, there's so much going on in the world and so much possibility. That's what I want to do with the show anyway. Um, And that is what I approach doing with the show um, by... Patrons on Patreon. Uh, it's the only source of funding for the show. So you please be one of those patrons. That'd um, be awesome. All right. So patreon.com forward slash Connor uh, Here we go with my episode on poetry and the occult uh, and alchemy with D.A.L. <laughs>
1: This is The Kiwi Comes to Gridley, California. At first it seems truly foreign, like the downy brown nutsack in a health class textbook, almost too firm, almost too perfect to be edible. If it gives to the touch, it's ready to pluck. No robin's egg, though you might nestle it in your hands. A few more boys deployed this week Under jade green vines they crawl on their crusty elbows Helmets tipped, their backsides up And they all went to bliss in their little skiff You may never understand the intersection of small and large Conquest and defeat For now, miraculous surges simply come a series of peaks which are not quite the purple monk's hood, not quite the crusty, papillated surface inside an alien geode. Consider this odd yield, overgrown berry with its easy sway and pubescent peel, how it will proffer its redolent fruit. This mysterious being now enters
0: you. To
1: arms, to arms.
0: All right, thank you so much. Um, So I am so excited to talk with you about poetry. Um, But I feel like I... Want to start by saying the way that people often talk about poetry, which drives me crazy, even though I do it, is they ask, um, "What is poetry good for?" That's like this right. question, or "What can it do in our time?" Right? And I think how that, can it change the world? Yes, exactly <laughs> that. And um, and and interestingly, if there is a way that it could change the world, which I think you've sort of talked about, that's never on the table. We'll come back to that a little bit, <laughs> but. Um, this like I think that it's just really part of these two ways that people discuss literature now, which is in general, which is what's missing. In other words, there's a kind of zeitgeisty. Identity or class conscious or politic look at literature, which has its own value, but it's an overwhelming kind of discourse, I think. What's missing from this? Who's not represented? Why? And what its function is, which is another way of saying what's missing. Like, what can this, what does this need to supplement before it becomes something that we care about? And so, in your book, Repast, that collects uh, three of your other books, in the intro, you know, you write, uh, and I think this has been commented on a few times, like, this is not about AIDS. And it, even though it chronicles the life of a lot of people who, yeah. you know, have died, especially that first, the first book in the collection. And I feel such a power in that, a power in saying, no, it's not the narrative that you've demanded in the way that yeah. we look at poetry. Something else is happening here. So can we start Sure. there? yeah. <laughs> Well,
1: I mean, I I think that uh, any art, if um, it gets reduced to its subjects, becomes sort of narrow and uh, less interesting uh, than if you um, are talking about it in terms of what does it actually bring to the table. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, I got here yesterday and I went to the national library and saw this amazing uh display of yeats's notebooks Mm. and his early drafts and looking at his handwriting and um i just feel like um what was made plain in this display was just the risk and pleasure of poetry um, the mm-hmm. idea that it's someplace that you go to for um, for a tap into your subconscious. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Yeats is doing things like automatic writing and mm-hmm. um, magic ritual. He has these um, uh, <laughs> sashes that mm-hmm. he's made for himself with... Um, uh ancient uh, magic symbols on them, and um, you realize for a writer like him um, it's all about the process, the attempt, the um, the idea that you're going to sit down and have a try
0: at writing a poem whatever whatever you're trying at I mean that's a yeah. it's so yeah there's um, you gave an interview uh, once where someone was asking about hanky codes, <laughs> and which is a great thing to talk about in an interview. Yeah. <laughs> with a poet, but um, hanky codes, and then and then um, they said something about dog whistles and how like the hanky codes were kind of a dog whistle, but how the term dog whistle had been appropriated to talk about the way that people on the right. Uh, send signals out to inspire violence against whatever marginalized group. And you said, uh, you know, there was a little lament again about like dog whistle being used that way. And you said, uh, as if they're the only dogs in town. That's what (laughs) you said. And um, (laughs) I think like, that's why I had you read this poem first, because I think people could easily read that poem and be like, this is a poem about soldiers. Um, but it's a poem in a part. O- yes, exactly. It's a poem about kiwis and nutsacks. I mean, I don't know how the hell you got away <laughs> with using the word nutsack in a poem. I mean you really pulled it off, sort of no pun intended, I, I suppose. I pulled it off. But yeah, but um, <laughs> But 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 the but the the fact of, and what you're saying as well with subjects is like poems aren't just about their subjects. They're not even about their subjects when they're about their subjects, yeah. because the subject can be so many different things. And the limit of viewing, it, it's completely opposed, to, in my mind at least, as a sort of non-poet, it, the, to the the principle of poetry, which is, no, the, everything's various and multiple, yeah. you know? Well,
1: and if I were to sit down and do the, uh, the um, sort of uh, essayistic version of this poem, it would start with, you know, what a Kiwi fruit is and where it comes from and um, why it's growing in California and how <laughs> weird that is that, you know, this area, Gridley, California, which is... Just a wide spot on the road um, becomes like this sister city of New Zealand because its environment is perfect for growing kiwi fruit, and um, like all of the all of the background of the poem is sort of boring and unnecessary. <laughs> um, I wanted to start right in the middle of things with just like. You know, what would people have thought of this thing when it first came to California? Because there was nothing that looked like it.
0: Except like the trouble with tribbles, basically, is the only thing. Right, right, right. Or or a brown nutsack. Right, exactly. (laughs) You just have to look down and be like, is that that? Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) And and so I was just, you know, trying to imagine like how strange was it Mm. in the mid 60s? For this foreign thing to show up on um, California soil. Which, you know, almost everything that grows in California is non-native. It's all been introduced Mm -hmm. in some... California had almost no trees. It had Mm -hmm. almost Mm -hmm. no um, vegetation in terms of, like, table crops or anything. You know, it was like... um, there was a lot of grassland hmm. and a lot of, um, nuts.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. But, you know, no fruit, none, all, all of the stuff comes from, from European, uh, settling time, starting with the Spanish, the Spanish mm-hmm. sort of come in and, um, introduce cattle
0: and, um, and there, there's a life granted there then I think like, you know, the Kiwi, I mean, it, it's not, only the the fact that you've attenuated yourself to notice the appearance of this strange thing gives it a kind of a different kind of life right and so it's like okay the plants around us you know how strange is it that this one decided to appear here there's a book by i haven't read it yet but i'm so excited to read it um michael tausig who is one of my favorite writers is an anthropologist and he's a book, a new book out called Palma Africana, which traces the sort of webs that palm oil has like oh, w- yeah. led through the world. But as if it's like, look, we're servants, to palm oil, do you not get it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and and really sort of bestows the life and the things that sort of spin out of it. And that, I think that that's something that is happening in this poem, but just that gesture of noticing um, yeah. what has kind of spun out even as I sit and write this poem, I imagine for you, it's like, I sit and write this poem, and now I'm an effect of the kiwi, because I've related all these things, and I've made a new map as a result of this.
1: Yeah, and, um, uh, you know, uh, contemporary biologists, particularly plant biologists, feel now that, um, in some ways, humans are just like big insects we're in service of the plant like they're really in control Mm. the plants are talking to each other they're like figuring out their map and and look at how plants thrive and they don't have to move you know everything comes to them (laughs) they've got it figured out
0: (laughs) they're just really lazy tops right right (laughs) yeah
1: and here we are you know sort of taking care of all the grafting all the yeah we're the ones that are helping them have sex we're you know um we're
0: doing all of the breeding for them big bees yeah. yeah i think i mean the idea being you know the the sort of uh it's interesting. I'm going to bring up an occult evolution thing, which is related to the poem that I wrote that you selected for the thing. It was all about the occult evolutionary path of animals. Uh-huh. But this is the same thing. Is like well, the difference of the plants is we carry our environment around inside of us, but the plants have their externalized. Their inner world is externalized, you know? And that's why you call it, like, when you talk about subtle bodies in the occult, where you have the mineral body, the etheric body, the astral body. The astral body is the body of our emotions, but it's named after the stars. So the plants have their astral body outside of them, you know? They still have it, but it's the sun and and all that, yeah. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that well i don't let's let's pull away from plants for a second because I want to make sure we get to all the poems that I want yeah have you read so there's another one called "Why We Have No Future" that I would love if you would share that, yeah. and one of the reasons why is after talking about like well the political function of the poem, this one is more in some ways obviously political, but only by virtue of it having been published in the nation, which I think is really funny, which
1: was almost an accident.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so the framing the frame of the poem of the nation is how you end up sort of noticing some of the things that i think as a reader you might not have noticed before but um yeah because i really didn't intend for it to be like some sort of national proclamation
1: uh-huh. political <laughs> in that way as if i intended anything i mean the whole poem was written in about the space of 20 minutes I was on my way someplace and I had 20 minutes to kill. And I was like, I haven't written in a long time. I'm just going to let my brain sort of go on autopilot. Yeah,
0: great. (laughs) Um, Well, yeah, would you like to? Sure. Yeah, thank you. Why we have no future, which
1: is a terrible thing to say.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Unless you're like a Zen Buddhist, in which case it's, it's actually you've achieved something in that case. (laughs) Well, let's hope I've achieved. Why we have no future.
1: I want to be free to get up in the morning, pee, and not come back to bed. We have no future together, he said, drawing a line in the sand of my chest, my nipples rival castles divided by degree. What did he see in the leaves of his tea, prognosticator, diviner? Sooth is not so soothing when it's removing what was built even temporary on a beach, facing erasure, wave after wave. How much farther is the future? Is it a grave? Is it a disease? Is it looming? Is it booming? Is it bust? We will see each other there in the future, not see as in see, but see. Will we be visible to one another or blank? Blank as a blank we fill in later with the wrong amount on a receipt we're turning in to be reimbursed. Mm. What were we worth? What did we cost? In the future will it matter what is lost? It will not be a human trait to remember. We will have made ourselves redundant, inefficient, and less desirable than what can be invented, ordered, on a screen in the future we'll check in yet never see each other lost in the lobby of a grand hotel where nobody works in the hotel of the future nobody wakes you in the future in the hotel of the future nobody makes the food it tastes of nobody it doesn't matter i says futures are overrated castles too and you man and you
0: (laughs) I love I love that poem and also I want to like scold myself for when you read it I did that thing that people do when they go to poetry readings where they go hmm like they (laughs) let that sigh I think but that's
1: good I mean I like when I get a sound out of
0: something (laughs) (laughs) but that sound Agha Shahid Ali said once like when you would read He was the uh, great poet. I'll put his stuff in the show notes for people that are listening. But he said, you know, when we would read guzzles, which are poems that have the same... uh, What is it? It's like the same pairing. There's a same sound and also a same phrase that recurs. Right. And people would shout out the phrase. And he said people would shout out the phrase at the end of the guzzle um, when I would read my poems. And now when I read them in America, it's just like you <laughs> just get that little sigh <laughs> so i caught myself doing that i mean i certainly wasn't going to shout and you man and you at the end although that would have been great yeah, yeah. <laughs> i would have welcomed
1: that i love interaction
0: <laughs> well i i'm thinking about like this poem as being I, I i didn't know that it was kind of like an accident how it there's a collaborative aspect to the poem then that frames it as, okay, well, I can hear this about a relationship, or I can see this as political. But the interesting thing to me is that people would always think that the real quote-unquote meaning was the political meaning, not the relational meaning. Like, I'm not saying everybody, but I think people go there with it for some reason, as if that's the deeper underlying thing. I don't think the poem even decides to be political until the last couple of lines. Uh. And that
1: was just me thinking. Oh, I've wandered so far from where I started.
0: I better loop back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so then why is why is it then that the political overtakes? I mean, that's part of its. It's almost that's like part of its structure and job, which well, makes I, it so insidious
1: in a way. I think it's also how we read in terms of. Um, how we read in terms of communities and groups and, and amongst people mm. in, um, in various places in the world, we're looking at the poem and we're thinking, well, what can we share mm. about it? What can we find common ground about? And it's not um, wanting to get up in the morning and pee and go back
0: to bed. Um, even though that is actually the thing that we truly well it's a very common common thing
1: but you know that's not that's that's like a little laugh that the poem gives you Uh uh-huh but it's not you know the the great subject that's driving it um the subject really is about um breaking up Mm -hmm. right it's like um at what point do you separate yourself from a relationship that's not working (laughs) and in this case we're having the relationship with the entire world and i was like how do we break up with the world
0: (laughs) um
1: maybe it'll be easier for us as people just sort of um absent themselves as we begin to grow you know more and more isolated in the world and all of our interactions are through technology and um you know so i begin to imagine in this future as as the future we don't have um, that um we'll be less and less able to bridge those Mm -hmm. common human subjects because we won't have them in
0: common anymore but I'm wondering so in saying all of that it's also a poem you wrote in 20 minutes right so like right. it's
1: you on my way to a, a bus station
0: you're reconfiguring what the poem means afterwards as if you've been like you know like like traumatized and had to reassemble the memories or something like that to give it meaning by writing right like because well, and yeah. also
1: it, it went into my notebook and just sat there for mm. months And I'm going through my notebook thinking, what can I work on here? And I read this, the draft, and I was like, oh, I thought this was actually just me, you know, Uh, throwing some words in a notebook to get something down on paper. And I was surprised to discover that there was much more meat on the bone than i had thought at the time (laughs) so i mean you do have to kind of go back to something that you've created with a fresh set of eyes um because you know in the heat of the moment everything's good and then it isn't Uh (laughs) uh-huh and you have to outlast both of those emotions Uh (laughs) uh-huh
0: that is a weird thing writers sometimes they're like oh i hate everything i write and i'm like what that seems so weird to me when i write things i fucking love them and then i can be really embarrassed by them later but Mm -hmm. you know i i think you're right it's like going beyond both of those to have some other quality that you like The quality of reading it better than liking the thing itself that's been written you know yeah
1: well and for me uh, oftentimes I like the finished product better than I like any of the process of having gotten there huh and Mm -hmm. so you know a, a lot of times in my mind I'm sort of erasing the process along the way so then people go back and ask me well you know how did this get there and I'm like I don't know uh-huh. <laughs> but you know yeah um i'm reminded my friend uh david trinidad was uh doing some research on um sylvia plath and you know that um poem of hers morning song which one is it it's the one that begins love set you going like a fat gold watch mm. and you know she's writing about the baby and how much energy the baby takes and i rise cow heavy and floral you know all those wonderful images and there's this amazing image of um a a breeze uh among the the flat pink roses which i always associated with um the baby's mouths uh-huh. And so David's going through Sylvia Plath's uncatalogued stuff and he finds this piece of paper and it's the wallpaper from the nursery. Flat pink roses. Uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Something so simple. And of course, you know, to to think backwards for Sylvia writing this poem, mm. she's She's trying to get everything right, and um, probably at some point just sort of idly staring off into space. And what does she see? She sees flat pink roses Mm -hmm. on the walls, and that becomes part of the poem. Mm -hmm. Um, And we don't need to know how it got in to to enjoy it or Mm -hmm. appreciate it. And we don't need to know what it means or what it adheres mm-hmm, to. Mm-hmm. You know, it has a life separate from how it got in the poem and how she thought of it in relation to, you know, does it signify this or that? Yeah,
0: it's so. So, <laughs> one of the things I learned about writing after I was basically at the end of my MFA program, and I wish I'd known it all along, was like, if you think it, put it in, like you can, right. So, and yeah. was trusting that. So it was the idea of if I'm writing something and I think of uh, a Goya painting or whatever, put it in the story. Like it, it something has asked you to l- allow it to belong and you can remove it later if you need to, but see what you happens. You just have to trust that the association exactly. is going to
1: be fruitful.
0: Yes. And so the thing that's, you know, that's really interesting to me is like, Right, that fruitful association that she put in with the wallpaper and the poem. And then it it got to be its own thing. But there's a way in which that, to me, resists this idea that poems present things as metaphors. Like the kind of poetry I don't like. I'm not going to name any names, but it's like, uh, I mean, I will after the interview. I'm reading your mind. (laughs) is the poetry that just is a a renaming, you know, game. Now, sometimes I can like that, but it's very rare. But it's just like, this is this, this is this, this is this. And this idea that things are just metaphors for each other. In some ways, I think that, like, there's a resistance to metaphor through poetry. Like, maybe poetry, especially that I like, it empties metaphor. It has its own kind of being-ness that doesn't rely on this stands in for this um but rather um there's a dynamic movement between these two things these are probably things that poets talk about all the time that i just don't know because i'm not in that conversation but i i want to resist that like the kind of poetry that insists on metaphor and that instead something new is born it's not just i mean something new is born from metaphors too but it's not just uh Stand-ins and placeholders.
1: Right. Well, and and metaphor, uh, sort of, it it has a forcefulness about it. Mm -hmm. Like, I am asking you to, um, I'm asking you to buy into the notion that this equals that. And so you either have to believe it or not believe it. Mm-hmm. um but i think for most poetry um it's it's not about whether the the reader has a buy in it's not about whether the reader is going to come to the poem fully uh, fully prepared to understand it i think of all these poems that i read when i was first reading poetry that puzzled me but they didn't keep me from reading. Mm-hmm. You know, the puzzle, the puzzlement was useful, mm-hmm. and I didn't have any expectation that um, there was going to be a literal reality behind the poem. I figured out early on mm-hmm. that there are poems that are trying to tell stories, but they're almost never as interesting as the poems that are just sort of going places. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. I remember reading a poem by um Margaret Danner. Um called Three Lives. It was about um the three civil rights workers that were murdered in Mississippi. But it's not an elegy. Um or rather it maybe it is an elegy. But she's got all of these um, all of these images of um, mimosa leaves and um, hmm. uh, the physicality of nature, and it's just the poem's not burying anybody; it's bringing them back to life, hmm. but in these like really vital, peculiar, interesting ways. And even though I didn't know what that was doing in terms of the story of these three men who had been killed, um, I found it preferable to just reading the facts of their lives.
0: Mm-hmm. It
1: was like somebody had done something to transform them into a living thing again.
0: Yeah, what's the um, what's the Alden poem? Something like uh, about suffering the old... Masters were never wrong, or something. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's the painting of Icarus, but then he, right? He, uh, Musée de M- Be- Musée de Beaux Arts. Yeah, exactly. Where he's detailing everything that's happening in the painting, but it, especially the background. So in the in the face of great events, there's always. You know, I think it's like it's like a dog scratching itself. I I should read the poem again because it's great. I'll put it in the show notes for people. But it's like the idea is that in the back, in the foreground, there's a grand event happening, but in the background, life goes on as usual. And it's not to say that the suffering is diminished or the grand event is diminished. But nor is it to say that it's greater yeah. than the other things,
1: or or that they're equal in any way.
0: Exactly, it's not. It's saying you know. In one way, I could sort of stand and turn and look at the scene and see more than what I saw, or see a whole fabric that that, de- that, that demands more interwoven into it than yeah. otherwise. And I, I love that. and I love you have you said something um, Well and it? I think that yeah.
1: the great thing about that Margaret Danner poem for me uh-huh. was that it could be a poem that included loss. But it wasn't about grief. Yes.
0: Yeah. Exactly.
1: And and uh, I realized, oh, there's more that you can do besides just say the obvious things.
0: Right. And we ne- we don't like. I remember, you know, when my mom died, the first thing she was in. This. Is, It's horrible for me to say this, but it's also funny. She died over a long period of time. And when she died finally in our house, her lips went white very quickly. And my sister, she kind of lost it. She was like, uh, you know... Lost it, of course we all lost it but she but she was like can someone put lipstick on her please and i there was a red pen sitting nearby and i pulled it. i was like no one will know you know and yeah. we laughed and then also i remember when they took her body away i just started singing this weird the rem song of all things i just started singing it and these things sure they're grief and they're loss but they're not only that i mean yeah. they they have other facets to them and i think you know, we grapple so much with the problem of duality, and we've done that for a long time, but there's a new or a newly or more noticeable problem of reduction to the single point that really, I think poetry has such a, at its best, has such a way of, it's not even confronting it. It's just like, no. You know, it's kind of a, a gentle walk away from yeah. it.
1: Yeah. Right, or... um uh, not even so much a walk away as a glance uh, away
0: right right uh, uh-huh. other things have
1: to <laughs> have to grab your attention mm. otherwise we just get um, pummeled by reality
0: uh-huh uh uh-huh. and 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 to bring it back to the the wallpaper because um, I love this I, it's funny I was at a cafe before I came here to talk with you And I was thinking about that principle of just put everything in. And there was a guy sitting a little ways away reading a Susan Sontag reader, okay? I love Susan Sontag, and I thought about her, and so I I thought to myself, I'll include Susan Sontag in the conversation, so treat the conversation like a poem or a story or whatever. And I remember this time when I saw her speak at Mount Holyoke, and the Q&A I mean, it was horrifying. I mean, it was abominable <laughs> and scary and great, you know, because she, you know, the, someone asked her a question and and she responded, I forget what the question was, but she responded something like about Joseph Brodsky and talked about him. And she said, see, people asked him stupid questions too. Oh. And then, <laughs> then she moved on to someone else said, asked her a question and she said, Oh, said, what's your greatest accomplishment? And she said, my dear, no one with a soul would ask such a question. But then the question that she did pick up, and she was very interested in, and that I think plays into this, was someone said, what ideas do you write from, and which ones do you discard? How do you know? Mm. Um, It's not, where do your ideas come from, but rather, which ideas do you select? Yeah, And so that... How do you
1: make choices?
0: Exactly. And... And in one way you want to answer, well, you don't. The choice has shown up, you go for it. Yeah. And on the other hand, of yeah. course you make the choice. So it's, there's a free will and deterministic question every time you sit down and write a poem or read one.
1: Well, and, and I think that most people are, are never quite honest about the fact that, you know, there's, there's this romantic notion that writing is about getting to getting to truth. Um, uh-huh. finding the the inner mysteries of things <laughs> and unlocking them and in fact I think that writing is about lying um, it's, it's a massive cover cover up because from the moment you start writing you start choosing what to leave out uh-huh. Uh-huh. and I think that that's the real choice that writers make not what do I put in because of course we want to put in everything right. but the choice of <clears throat> okay What am I not going to get around to in this poem?
0: And I'll bring up Joyce because we're in Dublin right now, and he's my favorite. I mean, Ulysses, I think, is a great expression of how that's also a truth. So I understand what you're saying about the line, but also... That's what our everyday consciousness is like all the time. You and I can be talking and I'll Mm. be thinking about something else. I've decided to leave out the words you've said to think about what I need to buy for groceries the next day or something. And when I say... Hey Connor, how you doing? There's all sorts of things that you don't tell me. Totally
1: <laughs> right.
0: And when I see you and talk to you, I'm not imagining like your intestines, even though they're right, you know, they're right now like a few feet away. You know, I mean, there's a lot well, you that could we could
1: imagine.
0: Right, I could, and now I am. <laughs> but oh, you have very nice intestines. Thank um, but... you. <laughs> you're welcome. But I think that there's like uh, there's that way in which the writing that you're talking about. And the line, that's actually very close to what our real experience is. So in some ways, a lie in choice, but a truth in the gesture of it. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk about poems as magic. Um, and to sort of kick that off, I would yes. really like if you read um, Mass for Pentecost. Oh, sure. Um and do you do we have? I have it right in front of me. Perfect. <laughs> and I think you said. Well, I'll let you introduce the poem. Yeah. Uh, do you want me to introduce it? Yeah, sure. Cause I know I like what I liked your introduction of it as well when I heard you introduce it once. Uh, well, what did I what did I say that? <laughs> Well, just I mean, you just brought up St. Francis and talked a little about so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I was I was uh, living in North Carolina
1: at the time. I was um, teaching at Davidson College, and um, pretty pretty bored really, <laughs> um, because Davidson, North Carolina is one of those towns that there's the college. And the Ben and Jerry's and not much else. <laughs> and so I, I just started going to all of these college events, whatever was happening. I'd go see the girls' basketball team, the boys' basketball, swimming, wrestling, free movies, whatever was going on on campus that sounded remotely interesting, I would go to. And there was a, a springtime concert by uh, an organist who was a professor emeritus there. His name was Thomas Warburton. And I had actually heard of him because um, my best friend in San Francisco, his uncle is a church organist. Hmm. And so Thomas Warburton is like this famous (laughs) organist who just happened to be in the same (laughs) tiny town in North Carolina where I was. And I thought, I'll go hear him. And he was playing uh, mostly music uh, for springtime, Um, some of it liturgical, some of it just um, uh, free range. (laughs) And um, he played a piece of music called um, Song for Little Birds and Waters. Is the, the the title in French is you know les petits oiseaux and whatever <laughs> uh, it's uh, the word for springs is in French. Um, anyway, the the piece of music is written so that the left hand makes all the gurgling sounds of the waters mm. on the organ, and the right hand makes all the twittering sounds of birds. Wow. And I was just so intrigued by that. And I thought, I I wonder if you can do that in poetry. And um, I sat on the porch uh, for the next few days and tried to figure out all sorts of ways in which I could make that happen. And it just wasn't working. Um, And so this was the poem that was written in frustration (laughs) at the fact that I'm not an organist and can't command all of the sounds at my fingertips (laughs) Um, and I had done some research on that piece of music and discovered that it was inspired by the um, orations of St. Francis who um, he is frustrated with the birds Um, you know we always see these statues of St. Francis with birds hanging on his shoulder and his (laughs) palms. Um, But apparently he and the birds had a little bit of an argument. (laughs) And he said to the birds, "Um, you neither reap nor sow. Um, You do nothing to earn all of the bounty that God has given you. And yet he's given you dominion over the greatest part of creation, the sky. And you ought to praise his name. And at that moment, the birds burst into song Mm -hmm. and then they fly up into the sky and create four quadrants, a living cross, Mm -hmm. which reminded me of the ancient augurs who would divide Mm -hmm. the air into four quadrants so that they could figure out what a bird's flight meant when it came through this way or that way. Um, So all of that is sort of going on underneath this poem. Um, mass for Pentecost, Canticle for birds and waters. There is no cause to grieve among the living or the dead so long as there is music in the air. And where the water and the air divide, I'll take you there. The levee aureate with yellow thistles, white moth, wasp, and dragonfly. We could not wish unless it were on wings. Give us our means and point us toward the sun. Will the spirit come to us now in the pewter patent of the air, The fluted call of dabbler drakes, The deadpan honk of the white-fronted goose, The tule-goose? Tongues confused in the matchstick rushes. Hi! High the bald pate cries and in the air and in the air the red winged blackbirds chase the damsel flies Triumph over death with me and we'll divide the air.
0: <laughs> I love that poem and I th- part of I hope my explaining it didn't ruin it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I don't like it anymore. No, <laughs> yes, no, I love that poem, and I, I mean, part of it is my proclivities for wanting to hear uh, Christianity in poems. Um, well, Christianity in anything because I'm very into it, but um, wanting to hear uh, that new new evocations of those themes. There's, um, you told a story once about. Borges um was that Borges talking to George Bernard Shaw? Is that possible? That's not possible. But you said Oh, wait. Yeah, yeah. But it was Borges related to George Bernard Shaw. Yeah. Borges told the story of George Bernard of Shaw of George Bernard Shaw. Yeah. So saying, um like what did, what did he say? He said all books all books are written by the Holy Ghost. George Bernard Shaw said that.
1: Yes. Um, uh, someone asked him at a QA um, and <laughs> a when so- Susan Sontag wasn't there to say what a <laughs> terrible question. <laughs> somebody said to George Bernard Shaw, um, do you really think that the Bible was written by the Holy Spirit uh, and he said not only that but all books were written by the Holy Spirit. Uh-huh.
0: It's so it's so beautiful. And th- you know there's a thing that Emanuel Swedenborg said about angels. He said that a single utterance from the angel is an entire volume from a human. So just the idea and it goes back to what you were saying before you said you said something once about like I'm not a po- I'm not a poet of like aboutness. I don't do aboutness, you know. Yeah. But there is something it's like when you think about that, when you think about the scale of the angel just, you know, uttering or breathing in a, in a voice that would sound very strange to us or beautiful, maybe um and and it containing so much. I think when I hear a a poem like the one you just read, I feel Though not the voice of an angel, I'm sorry to tell you, but I feel the rush of a, a, an attempt, an attempt, you know. Yeah, an 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 attempt at bridging
1: that gap. Yeah, you know. I think of the the Sistine Chapel, and <laughs> the frustrating thing about God and Adam is that they never touch. Uh-huh. There's always a gap there, uh-huh. and I feel like that straining. To bridge the gap between the human Mm. and the divine is one of the uh, essential elements of poetry. Mm. That, you know, it's an attempt at going from the human sphere to the divine sphere the way that the birds do. I mean, uh, Lucretius tells us that Mm. um, human speech began as us being jealous of the birds and trying to imitate their sounds. So our limited speech is but, you know, a poor echo of <laughs> this thing that we so admired that we wanted to imitate.
0: And I want to say, like, I want to take the word poor out, poor echo. You know, there's this Kate Bush song where <clears throat> it's plays bird song, and then she tries to sing the bird song. uh uh-huh. And it's very strange when she does it. She's like... you know, But then she starts laughing as she does it, and she's laughing and laughing. And then I think the lyrics are something like, all the birds are laughing. And um, it's joyous also. So we can see that as frustration. This actually goes back to something that comes up on the show a lot when I talk to people that are into psychoanalysis. They're really into the lack, this idea of there's always something that will be missing. It's unbridgeable. And I always feel like... No, that's something. That's not a nothing, okay. that's a something. So yes, their fingers aren't touching, and yet they are contained and together in the chapel. Like yeah. they've been painted onto the, the surface. So a- again, that's, we can see it either way. And I think that thinking about the lack is also really instructive and, and gives us something. Sorry, I just there was it, a bird it was outside. It's a Hitchcock the, moment out. Yeah, there were <laughs> some birds outside uh, attending to our attending to our meeting. But um so they heard us talking about. That. They did. <laughs> Well, they heard us talking about that one time that Saint Francis scolded them and sort of got involved. It's something I love about Dublin. You wake up to the sound of seagulls um, every morning, and they're not mall parking lot seagulls. You know, yeah. they're the seagulls that have blown in from the coast and will blow back later in the day. You know,
1: the vagabonds.
0: Yeah, it's great. It's great, but I, you know. So I think I'm just thinking about that, um, the pleasure of that you know and and there's something like poetry itself i'm going to go on a little bit longer and then let you talk about it but you know this judith balso book affirmation of poetry do you know this book no. oh it's it's incredible and she just writes you know poetry is necessary for thought like we need to stop talking about it as some separate thing is actually, like, it's a necessary component, whether you think it is or not. It's the external hard drive, you know? I mean, yeah, right,
1: right, For thousands of years, it was the way that we kept information, uh-huh. was in poems.
0: Yes, and so, you know, it's like, there's the psychoanalytic proposition by Lacan, Jacques Lacan, that the unconscious is structured like a language. Now, I don't necessarily believe that, but I would say if I did believe that the unconscious was structured like a language, it was a language that was always forming poems. And so in some way, like poetry is much closer to the seam of creation than anything else, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and
1: you know, <clears throat> when I say a lack, I'm not saying that as a negative. I mean, if there weren't a lack, Uh, Or a vacuum, then there would be nothing for us to fill. Uh You know, if everything were perfect and touched up and united and and creation were indeed finished, how boring would that be? (laughs) (laughs) And Uh so, you know, we constantly have to have Mm. that interval, that space that we rush to fill or attempt to fill with our human birds chattering.
0: Right, yeah, and I I try to say that, like, um, I forget who, I think it's, I think actually it's Deleuze who said it, but it's like, you know, I don't ask why is there something instead of nothing, I ask why is there something instead of something else, you know, and so it gives you a picture of that lack that's full and vibrant, it's not, with potential and and enthusiasm in a way, you know. Right, and also... It's about the pleasure of putting things in order, right?
1: To uh-huh. say this follows this mm-hmm. in in my mind, uh-huh. maybe not
0: in reality, but in my mind, this is the uh-huh. you know the order of things. And the reality is your mind. I mean, that's or at least part of it. Whatever sort of ontology you that's want to take I've up, that's what I've always
1: been afraid of.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what well, if so- everything I think is true? <laughs>
0: I love I think Fran So, like once she was like I think people just need to understand that everything I say is right. You know, so that's I think maybe that's the big difference between gay men and lesbians. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> gay men are very invested in being right. But there's also there's a Wittgenstein thing which is um there's a whole mythology in our language. You know, he says like we look no further than, you know, the space between letters. Mm-hmm. And you have a poem that's I was a, I I watched you read it once and people <laughs> laughed about owls, um, or and you said it's composed from the parts of an owl and it was just you sort of rearranging the letters the three letters yes exactly oh. exactly and there was so much in there there were so many sounds and so then I was also thinking about um, because of the poems you've written about AIDS I was thinking about the letters HIV and how like. Even when I look at them, what do those letters look like to me? A bridge, and then a person, and then a collapsed bridge. The H is the bridge, and then the I is the person standing yeah. up, and then there's a collapsed bridge in the V. And I was thinking even the shapes of the letters affect us deeply without oh, yeah. realizing it,
1: you know? I feel like the word Ohio looks like a tractor.
0: <laughs> and very deceptive because it looks, when you say to people, I love doing this, what's the only state that's spelled the same forwards and backwards? They say Ohio, but in fact there is none because yeah. <laughs> it's not spelled the same forwards and backwards, so it's a deceptive tractor. <laughs> yeah, an almost
1: palindrome.
0: Almost, it, yes, exactly. <laughs> an almost palindrome. I well, I want to get. I want to say something about palindromes, but I won't. But I think like the the idea of um, then the then those letters HIV, just the letters they become imbued with. It's not, it uh, increasingly less, I suppose. But like they're they're a hexing, they're a hexing sequence.
1: Yeah,
0: and they're not. They don't spell a word. It's not hive. I mean, although people jokingly say the hive, but to say the letters, you know, you're saying the letters themselves.
1: Well, and and in uh, T, I actually have, um, I have, the word, hive, and uh, the word, uh. shiv. Uh huh. So. You know, it is. It's coded
0: in Uh to the poems, but hidden. Uh huh. And the word ivy. And the word ivy is in HIV too. Yeah. Yes, and I I, poison HIV. Yeah. I
1: have (laughs) ivy, which you know um, was not a word that I thought much about until um, I was listening to that Mamas and Papas song, (laughs) "For the Love of Ivy." Uh
0: Have you heard For the Love of HIV? (laughs) No. Someone said,
1: you know, that song was written during John Phillips's heroin addiction.
0: Ah, ah, And I was like,
1: oh, For the Love of IV. Uh, IV. Yeah.
0: And that's so interesting, too, just to say, like, that the homophones, like, IV, it's slightly off. IV I V, you know like the emphasis is just a little it's not even really a different like accent but it's mm. a little different um it's like a rhyme it's like a rhyme and that's something you know i thought about when i was reading your poetry too and you can hear it in why we have no future you know the rhymes come in and i was wondering what rhymes are outside of poetry wherever like what what does a rhyme do if, if you and I, I mean, you can't help but laugh if, if someone's just talking about something, you know, whatever it may be and they rhyme and you hear it and it's something that you see, it's funny. Yeah. You know, yeah. like you can't, it, people laugh when they hear a rhyme. They do. Yeah. And, and that's
1: uh, especially true in short words that are made of rhymes mm. like claptrap. trap. <laughs>
0: Right, it's funny.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It's like, you have to maybe stop and think what claptrap means, but just to hear it, Uh you're like, you know, or when somebody says hoity-toity. Uh-huh, right. (laughs) Exactly. It's It's like, by rhyming the thing with itself, you have made a a pleasure moment.
0: Uh Uh-huh. A claptrap. A claptrap. I think that that's why I'm... Like, someone who uses rhymes to describe something of some intensity or uh, or frustration or whatever, like K. Ryan, the poet, mm. it, it's, it feels so mean. Like, I, I love it, but it right. has a real mean spirit to it in its own way because you've taken the thing that is, like, imbued with delight and you've decided to twist it into a jab at somebody, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, my my first introduction to rhyme... Was probably like everybody else my age, Batman and Robin. Huh. Um, you know the TV series. Yeah, that ran in the sixties. Um, not a lot of people noticed this probably, but I noticed it as a child. Um, remember how Batman and Robin was formatted? That um, one night yes. they would
0: there's a cliffhanger. Um, yes, every time
1: there's always a cliffhanger. Right and stay tuned. Same bat, bat time, time, same, same bat, bat channel. Um, and then the cliffhanger would resolve in the next episode, and there would be a little leaving at the next one to sort of introduce the next villain. Well, each of those episodes that are um, introducing the villain and then closing off the the villain's villainy. Um, <laughs> Are actually like a little villanelle. <laughs> um, all of the titles of the That's episodes great. rhyme with each other. They do. Yes. You you can you can look it up on on the internet. I uh, love if you, that. If you find on Wikipedia the list of the episodes of the Batman series, uh, read it, and all of a sudden you're reading a series of rhymed
0: couplets. Uh huh. And um, you've got to just list all those. I mean you're the perfect person to do it too. <laughs> because you have that book myself with who, who did with you David book? Trinidad. With David Oh, with David yeah. Trinidad, yeah. Um, it's all just selections from other people's memoirs. Yeah. <laughs> which is incredible. But you're the perfect person, like this, this sort of listophilia of thing, like where you just can you really could create something out of those well i i I just i don't i don't mean to assign you the duty you're you're asking us to do that as homework but it's a found poem that Uh nobody found that's the
1: crazy thing was it was always there and most viewers ignored it but (laughs) i would always want to know what's the title of the next episode because it's gotta sort of yeah it it doesn't just have to close thematically. Yeah. It also has to close in terms of sound and rhyme.
0: Uh, I would love maybe doing like an exquisite corpse kind of thing where you try to come up with the name of the next episode before you know it. So like you watch one episode and then you write what the name will be for the mm. next one. Yeah. And then... Uh, I yeah. might know
1: the series too well to be able yeah, to Yeah, you do
0: won't that. be able to do that. <laughs> but you can tell me what they are. And by the way, I think that like we're in a hotel room and it sounds like someone's using the water next door so please appreciate our third guest uh, or third person on the show who is showering somewhere in the building if you can hear it and if you can't then that's not happening Um, I wanna can could you read uh, another poem yeah strange flower in my hands porphyry shell clipped wool I will absolutely do you you need some background on this one I don't think so because we'll talk quite a bit from it yeah
1: um and it does have a a subtitle a song of john the divine with the holy preface as in the vision of saint burgitta so i can certainly expound on that strange flower in my hands porphyry shell clipped wool all the dark caves that beckon and terrible mud chambers of the wasp i touched the raffa of your skin where once it had seemed to you amethyst jewels on your crown a skull cap upon the crozier of your loins the old wet clothing of trees lies on the forest floor naked world Spreading underbrush and tendrils of the new vines moist. Once I buried the soft body of you in my mouth. Licked that hurt place where they had cut you. So long ago you had put that infancy away. You grew large inside me. Gifted my lips and throat with a swirling galaxy. Milk of the night sky balm from the trembling branches of the poplar explosion of pale confetti signaling the new year the wine is bubbly the bread a generous slice i will make a ring of this covenant i will bed thee down in a pasture and make a berm of your torso i am the marsh Above, a dipper pours thick liquid of your veins. Cold now, catch you, I do.
0: <laughs> Thank you. I I wanted you to read this poem because something I say when I give talks a lot at universities and so forth about pornography is that, like, one of the reasons why academia has been so miserable at including sex at all in any consideration is that by the time it starts talking about sex it's just eliminated all the feelings of sex and so really the only way to talk about sex is to speak in pornography and I revised my view a bit after reading this poem mm-hmm. um, among others when I thought well also poetry also poetry but then you put poem and porn next to each other, and they're almost the same word. You know, you could confuse. I mean, my phone auto-corrects one to the other. You can guess which direction it goes in, but like, probably both. <laughs> exactly. <It's versatile. laughs> but I think you know um, the possibility. It's not. It's not quite pornography, you know, um, and yet it's it's right there. It's right there. It's
1: right on the tip. Yes,
0: exactly. <laughs> If that the e the e is about to become an r, and the uh, m is about to lose uh, its second hump. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean the the um, the object that is at the center of this poem is something which has both um, a very devout and um, metaphysical property about it and also um, a very earthy and bodily function and that is you know it's um, written about the foreskin of Christ which is the one piece of his body that remains on earth when he is Mm -hmm. resurrected in the body he's got all of his wounds which means Mm -hmm. if he's got all of the wounds that we know about involved in the crucifixion anything else that was cut is still cut Mm -hmm. and um, indeed in medieval times Charlemagne apparently received um, the holy foreskin as a gift um, several other people had the holy foreskin in their churches at one time or another and um, St. Brigitte um, v- had a vision where um, John the Divine was ring wearing it on his ring finger <laughs> John you know in the gospel according to John Um, always describes himself as the apostle whom Christ loved
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so there's that implication in her vision that that relationship is consummated by John wearing Christ's foreskin
0: which by the way anybody who would ever want to get married to me guys that's the only ring i'll accept (laughs) i'm totally against marriage in general but if you got down on one knee and offered the foreskin of christ to me as a ring i'd say yes (laughs) well and i'm sure it's out there on the black market (laughs) (laughs) for a price Uh, (laughs) it seems like it would have to be i mean it's like baby foreskin no no Well, yeah. So, like, it's so, so really, like, you'd have to stretch it to fit it on a finger. You could probably make an earring. I mean,
1: depending on how big, you know. Yeah, well, and some things really stretch, but. Yeah, that's true. It depends on how it was treated. (laughs) Exactly. According to one legend, it was um, kept in a box of spikenard ointment, and that's the ointment that Mary Magdalene buys. And anoints Christ before the trip to Jerusalem. So she's actually yeah. anointing him with his own foreskin.
0: That's really incredible. I love that story. I, I'm think. I mean, so again, I just want to say that, like, like your poetry, which unashamedly brings in sex and I say unashamedly because sometimes even people who are very expressly sexual in their poems it still seems ashamed in a way yeah. and not in yours um, and I think also Richard Sicken's first book, Crush I mean even though that's not like porn fucking porn 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 it still feels really pornographic to me because the current of yeah, desire like- is so strong
1: it's, it's like a Kenneth Anger movie.
0: Uh-huh, uh-huh. There
1: might not actually
0: be sex, but god damn, there's a lot of sexy. Yes, exactly. Um, and then I was thinking about, you know, it's funny, I had Zachary Schomburg on the show. That's the other poetry episode that I have out so far. And it's a great episode But I think, and I love talking to Zach, but I think in his poems, he mentions sex often, but it's very not sexual it's and that's interesting to me like that the that the content does not evoke a feeling i mean and we and that that's something to pay attention to even in the first poem you read to say nutsack in relation to kiwi because of the sensual aspect i do that is sexual whether yeah. even though it's even it's absurd in you its think own about way. it the next time you eat a kiwi <laughs> <laughs> especially when you peel it <laughs> if you peel it. Uh, I, just, I I met a woman once who said her husband, or she, she said she ate the kiwi, the, the skin on it, and she said, my husband thinks I'm mad. And I was like, well, now hearing reading your poem, I think, well, my goodness, you must feel threatened that you're just going to take a bite one day. Yeah.
1: <laughs> what other skin is she going to eat?
0: Exactly. Um, but, <laughs> so, I think maybe, uh, Let's come to a close with you reading a few uh, poems that you'd like to share. and um, Sure. And then I have a particular poem I'd like you to end with, a very short one. Okay. Um, so you go ahead and pull up what you like. And, uh, yeah, I'm very excited to have this conversation. I, w- I want more conversations with poets on the show because they I feel do well the ones I like at least do a better job at like the task at hand for me that I uh, that I think is at hand for me which is that Bugs Bunny thing of you're being chased by a bunch of people you go down an alley and there's a brick wall so then you pull out a piece of chalk and draw a door yeah I think that that's what poets really excel at
1: Daffy Duck in Hollywood (laughs) um do you remember... Did, do you remember that one? No. Um, uh, it's, it's the most meta of the, of the...
0: Oh, it's the one where he's being drawn. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. it
1: turns out that it's Bugs Bunny that keeps yes. changing his body.
0: And then there's one where that happens to Bugs Bunny, too. And it's Elmer Fudd. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know... These tropes. Uh-huh. They're like Greek myths. <laughs> um... Uh, this poem was inspired by, I just found out that this place closed. Um, Knob Hill Cinema? Yes, it just closed. In San closed. Francisco? Yeah. Um, which was a long time uh,
0: strip palace and other things. With se- sex shows and you could sort of go up on stage and, you know, grope at the performers if they allowed you and that sort of thing. Yeah. And they had a sign outside that said, you can touch our junk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they did, and I was asked to perform there once, and I never did, and I feel sad about it. But it was just one of those things where they paid so little money that I was like, I'm not, you know, I'd rather. In some cases, you'd rather. I'd rather for just free. give it away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then, then have you pay so little? Exactly.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. Well, this the, this is my imagining of um, someone who works in a in a sex shop, um, who uh, isn't working at the Knob Hill Cinema, and it's called Don't Touch My Junk. <laughs> I strip for tips, it's pits, it's hit or miss. You sit, unzip, and spit on it, but it's a trip. My trick? I'll piss, I'll shit. I'll fist your dick. I'll lick your lip till bit by bit you're sick of it. I quit at six. Let's fix. Let's sex. Be quick. Who's next? So thick, I'll rip.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is there something about... I mean, the word fuck and these words that you've chosen... I I, I I didn't say fuck! No, 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 no. I'm saying fuck and the words you've chosen. The... The a lot of times the domains of sex is monosyllabic you know? Absolutely. And and uh and uh And all, the all these through- lines are are two syllable lines. Uh-huh. So they are all they're all
1: I ams or trochies. Mm. Um and I love that moment where the emphasis shifts because it's mostly I ams, right? I strip for tips, it's pits, it's hit or miss but um, <laughs> till bit by bit you're sick of it I quit at six let's fix let's sex be quick who's next hmm. so thick I'll rip um, and I so I I, <laughs> I did something that you should never do in a poem which is to not only write these very short lines of only two syllables each but to have the same sound Mm -hmm. ending the line each time Mm -hmm. or nearly the same sound. Um, I thought, this is going to sound awful. And then I did
0: it and I was like, you know,
1: I kind of like it.
0: (laughs) You know, there's a um, this... Uh, rapper Buster Rhymes that did that a lot in sort of earlier songs yeah. and it's dizzying like the amount of times he rhymes the same sound uh-huh. it's like I mean he doesn't do the two syllable thing but it's so gratifying like he just spins around a sound you know yeah. again and again and again yeah yeah great so uh, maybe do you want to do one more and then we'll we'll conclude on the um... yeah um <laughs> Let me get a, yeah. Let
1: me see what else. Oh, yeah, I do have. This is terrible.
0: <laughs> that's all right. I think I think people want to know the. Um, Where did I put my phone? It's right there. People are here. People will hear the. Oh, is that not it? No, that's not. Uh, yeah. The iPod. It's right there on your chair. Huh. <laughs> this is the real. Uh, this is the moment where you know you actually have to. The veils, the veils have fallen away. This is uh, just two people in a hotel room talking I to didn't each know other. I did you were going to ask for another poem. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I have one that I want you to read. So, and it's very short, and I'd love you to conclude with it when you're ready, or you can read another one. But um, um, I, think, I will. Um, well, I'm gonna unless, ask, unless uh, uh, I'll read a very short poem okay well i want to add one more thing while you're looking as well which um in reference to um strange flower in my hands that again there's this scene in ulysses where leopold bloom uh when he's going and getting uh soap for molly bloom and all this and there's that that pharmacy still exists here it's called sweeney's and you can get the soap i went by there yesterday yeah go you we if it's open maybe we should go in but the there's all this plant life in that and at the end he's imagining himself in the baths and seeing his penis float in the water as he's lying in the baths and thinks of it as a floating flower and so it really connects me with your poem and so i just love being in dublin and Rub a dub dub in that song, <laughs> or that the uh, the song in Ulysses in your poem, but yeah, um, I I would love for you to um, conclude with a very short poem uh, okay. of yours called Slut, and um, I think one of the things I have several called Slut. Well this is the sled I'm talking oh. about. <laughs> and I think I think one of the reasons why is um I think it sums up a lot of the things that we talked about today the um the glance away the not aboutness the sort of refraction of meaning that can appear in different ways the pornographic nature of things i mean there's so much and it's just a few lines and the pornographic and the nature yes yeah so um um, but before you read uh, because i want to end with it i just first please say whatever you want about the poem but i also just want to thank you for being on the show and having this conversation glad that
1: we got to do this yeah
0: me too (laughs) um
1: who knew that i was going to come to dublin and and get to sit with you and
0: and talk about poetry talk about ripping anuses it was perfect etc actually we did know that we would talk about that i'm sure but the rest
1: yeah i'm sure the rest was up we, for right. the rest was
0: up to chance I'm <laughs> like i hope
1: he's going to ask me about christ foreskin <laughs> um yeah so uh, i i've been working on uh, a bunch of short poems and and several of them have the title slut it's one of those words that i just think is so um so wonderful and apparently, um, in the original version of Cinderella, Cinderella was called cinder Slut. Amazing. Um, but this isn't about her. <laughs> slut. Spread millet in this neighborhood. All you get is blue jays.
0: Blue jay may be cooked three ways. Thank you so much uh, for being on the show, and everybody, thank you so much for listening. Yes, thank you. Bye.